This episode is dedicated to Dan, Tom, and Jay Young for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. This is Sam. This is Jason. And this is Fight Study. On this fight study, we are going to go over UFC Fight Night, Cater versus Chikadze, and then preview some of the fights from UFC 270. First, let's go over the results. In the featherweight main event, Calvin Cater beat Giga Chikadze by five-round decision. At heavyweight, former middleweight Jake Collier beat Chase Sherman by rear naked choke in round one. At flyweight, Brandon Royval beat Rogerio Bonturin by decision. At women's flyweight, Caitlin the racist Chicagoan beat Jennifer Maya by decision. <laughs> At lightweight, <laughs> Vyacheslav Borshev beat Dakota Bush with a body shot TKO in round one. At featherweight, Bill Algio beat Joe Anderson Britu by decision. Apparently for Algio, even Joe Biden is too far left for him. Oh, jeez. <laughs> At middleweight, Jamie Pickett beat Joseph Holmes by decision. At welterweight, Court McGee beat Ramiz Brahimov by decision. Please pay McGee more and put him on the main card. Come on, he's a tough winner. At featherweight, Brian Kelleher beat Kevin Kroom by decision. Kelleher is doing a smart thing by just taking fights at both bantamweight and featherweight and keeping busy and getting paid because I think he knows his ceiling, so he's just trying to get as much money out of this as he can. Yeah, stay consistent, stay active, and make that money. And he has a grappling-heavy style, so that allows him to um, not have to stand and trade as much. At lightweight, we have TJ Brown beating Charles Rosa by decision. Brown still seems to fade in the later rounds, and Rosa has not looked the same ever since his neck injury, which kept him out for over two years. Now let's talk about the slobber knocker that was Calvin Cater versus Giga Chikadze. First off, Jason, can we talk about how the lack of high-level wrestling is really going to shorten your career in MMA? Because you're going to just end up in slugfests even when you're winning. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's strange because even the, the narrative as posed by uh, Bisping during some of the, the commentary was, well, you still have to do damage. Well, it seems like a lot of a lot of kickboxer types got into MMA to fight shittier strikers and then complained about the wrestling component. And I think that's that's a little bit a little bit strange. And uh, I get the the need to be fan friendly, but like wrestling is is an incredible equalizer, and it's the bridge between the ground and and standing. It can put you in position to be incredibly dominant while not taking a ton of damage and engaging for that tit for tat. You hit, I hit, you hit, I hit. I mean, it can put you in a position where you can do damage and mitigate any offensive threat from your opponent. And I think you'd be, you'd be remiss to, to not take that advantage um, if you have that wrestling advantage or wrestling ability. You look at this fight, you look at Max Holloway's last fight with Yair Rodriguez, and you're like, okay, it's a shutout. You win every round, 
but also it's still brutal because even the rounds you're winning, you're still getting hit to the head so many times. Yeah, well, it's a difference in mileage, right? Like it's putting mileage on a 1989 Ford F-150 or like the mileage you have on a 2007 Honda Accord. (laughs) One you trust to get you across country. One you'd be better served to uh to to take a fucking uber you know <laughs> and I, I and i get it that there is this push to bring in like these these striking hybrid athletes and saying it's about and i i do understand the ufc business model and i complain about it all the time the commoditized overly aggressive striker with little gloves and shitty defense but um you're starting to see that there are levels to this thing and you brought you brought Max Holloway, like Max Holloway and um, and Volk. They're light years ahead of everybody else in that division, um, because they have offense, defense, uh, grappling awareness, and the and, and fight IQ combined with conditioning and, and durability. You know, not everyone's built that way, so not fighting to your strengths is gonna is gonna wear you out and wear you down, and all in the name of curry and favor to. Uh, to the powers that be but i guess that's the job and that's the gig so if that's what they're hoping to do i mean you better be content with smelling the top 10 but there's a difference between being really good and entertaining and being world class now can you talk us through the first round and then what went wrong for chikaze and right for cater um well the pre-fight narrative is the explosiveness of giga and the the pressure of Calvin, right? Uh, and we can we can be even more reductive and say the boxing of Calvin, but uh, but Cater brings a lot more to the table than that. Like he's got excellent wrestling, solid defense, five round cardio, and an, an outstanding chin. It starts off with the pressure of um, of Calvin Cater, and the initial success Chikazi had was throwing in combination. But it was it was odd. It was after a few exchanges in the first minute and a half where you thought, all right, this is going to be competitive because Chikazi was throwing in combination and landing. The the success I saw in the first round, Chikazi threw like a double lead left from the South Bus stance, and Cater was in the Orthodox stance, right? Um, and the combination ends with a right high kick from Giga and give a gigs gives a little bit of ground, and throws a nice left kick to the body. Then he seems to short circuit and just decides to massively load up on single strikes after that. So he throws a single straight left, followed by another single straight left, followed by by a single left kick to the body, then another single straight left, and he quickly resets and he misses with the high kick that he launches as if as if Cater isn't, isn't world-class or isn't top five. You know, he just throws a single telegraph strike and that leads to to Calvin almost taking his back and eventually getting the body lock takedown. But let's be clear with this. There's a, there's a difference between striking in combination and throwing multiple single strikes in succession with just a beat or a quick pause in between. And Giga obviously has a speed advantage and he possesses some real physical gifts, but fuck man. I mean, you're main eventing against Calvin Cater. And he's a legit top 10 fighter with usually very solid defense and outstanding pocket presence. 
maybe, just maybe you don't rely solely on, on all your physical gifts and start bombing single shots. Like, don't get me wrong, right? <laughs> um, Gig is good. Uh, but he's, he's no Max Holloway, right? And, it, and Holloway had clear success against Cater with combos and volume. Uh, but Max is an outstanding volume puncher and a combination striker. Giga, eh, you know, not so much. But Giga had success in the first round when he struck with, like, well-thought-out combinations. And I think that was, that was when he started loading up on single strikes it was easier. It was much easier for Calvin Cater to, to time that entry off that slip, sort of take the back, go to the body lock, and then stay in that top position where, you know, Giga has a little bit of a deficiency on the ground, in my opinion. What was surprising was usually when it goes to the ground and there's not a ton of damage, both fighters end up coming out in the next round recovered because, you know, just from grappling so much in MMA, even when you're on bottom, you figure out how to rest. Except when they came out, Chikaze looked so tired, right? So that time on the ground was not recovery. It seemed like somebody who just started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu like a year ago, you know, maybe not like the first month, but still has that like beginner jitters where they just tire out so quickly when they're on the bottom, right? And he still seemed to have that where like from half guard or having his back taken, he should have been relaxed and recovering, but instead that drained him more than all the explosive strikes he was throwing prior to that. Oh yeah, well, Giga Giga looked like everything was 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 tension and rigidity on the bottom. And one thing wrestlers do well is wrestlers rest well from the top position. You know, so when you when you have that familiarity, you have the ability to rest better than someone who is is not so familiar. So everything from Giga was like a squeeze, like a big squeeze, and like big hip shifts and he was doing things technically correct but there wasn't that that fluidity of motion or that economy of motion that is going to be necessary if you ever think you're going to fight a five round fight effectively there's a difference in in being uh, a good technical fighter and an entertaining fighter a big difference right and there's also a difference between having command or mastery of technique just like we talked about on the ground um, and being a technical fighter, there's a big difference there. And Giga, and this is just my opinion, and I'm sure analysts and people on Twitter and all the place much smarter than me will disagree. But Giga Chikadze, yeah, he was in glory, and he has really fancy kicks that he's good at throwing. He looks really cool doing them. But in terms of striking for MMA, in terms of setups, traps, uh, footwork, defense, you know, I rate him, I rate him a C minus at best, maybe even a D. You know, and I think we, we were just talking about round one, but round two was re- rather demonstrative of some of those deficits. You know, I mean, Giga's feet were Giga's feet were all over the place. He dropped his hands after like every major uh, punch combination or, or punch exchange, uh, a ton of single shots and resetting with his hands down. And yeah, obviously, like your your main eventing and fatigue is going to play a factor, right? But the level of breakdown and the level of degeneration of fundamentals at what we were like seven and a half minutes in, seven minutes in, it tells me that Giga has basic MMA skills and neuromuscular facilitation or muscle memory, if you will, uh, but far from what most would consider a technical fighter by any real measure or metric. 
you know, it isn't etched into his genome like like Holloway or or Volk. You know, he's mostly just. And again, I'm not shitting on him because he's good um, and he's certainly entertaining, but he's mostly explosive and aggressive. But he's really hittable, and he has suspect grappling and fish out of water cardio. Though he's really tough, and uh, and he fights incredibly tough when tired, which is fun to watch, not as a coach but as a fan, right? Uh, and he's got a solid chin, which makes him must see TV. Now, I picked Chikaze to win, but now in hindsight, it looked like a bad style matchup. But also, Cater was only a high school wrestler, and uh, I'm sure he trains a lot of wrestling, but. He was only able to take him down once, and it was off of a missed kick. So now I'm wondering what happens to Chikaze if he fights people with better takedowns and better ground control. Like, I feel like, in a way, the blueprint has been shown. So, like, even somebody like the Korean Zombie or Brian Ortega, you talked about Volkanovsky and Max Holloway being light years ahead of everybody else. Well, then you got people like Zombie and Ortega who are, like, the next tier below, right? And I can't even imagine Chikaze beating them. No, I, I, I was going to say that. It's funny you bring that up. Would you give them a chance in hell? And the answer is no. The betting odds, like if you knew what you were watching, um, but there's no way. Could you see? And, and that's a great point. I mean, look at the top five, right? Who, you, who else you got? Brian Ortega. We had Giga ranked fourth, which I thought was a little bit of a gift. Um, I don't know if I see Giga beating Yair he's like just uh, he's got he's like Yair with better shoulder development and worse hair <laughs> Yair is much more of a submission threat yeah absolutely he's, he's a little more well-rounded and if uh, I think it got into some of those kind of like muddled um back and forth grappling exchanges um where I think Gig is like extremely strong he looks like a strong guy but I think that kind of like rigidity and, and need to squeeze instead of like understanding leverage and, and hip positioning is just going to contribute to him gassing out to anyone who has, like I said, any economy of motion understands their, their ability to, to move in grappling sequences without making everything. So, um, I don't know, such a massive energy spend. I'd like to see him fight Ige. I think that'd be, that'd be a, a fun fight. Especially because Ige is a slow starter. He's a slow starter, but in a five round fight, Ige is very durable. And, Granted, we're looking at people with different body types. Ige is a much smaller fighter without the length of Cater. But the jab from Cater and the forward pressure just absolutely ate Giga Chikadze's lunch. And, you know, if, imagine, can you imagine Giga against Max? Like, not only would Max eat his lunch, he'd make him pay for it and then steal the fucking tip. You know, there's like, there's no way. I don't say that. But, there's always a kicker's chance, right? Right, because he has that that sneaky head kick, and if he chips you on the side of the head, all of a sudden you uh you got your rods and cones are all messed up, and you're on on some wobbly legs. So he's got he's got that ability, but he wasn't able to pull the trigger on on many of those attempts because, and this is where the commentary got some things right. Um, uh, Calvin kept him on, kept Giga on the back foot, right, and it's hard to to land those kicks. You're not going to throw them when you're giving ground. But you got to give Cater some credit there, and you have to put um, some of the onus on Giga Chikadze for uh, for giving that ground and throwing so many singular strikes. 
Now, there's a lot of commentary about Cater's forward pressure, but not as much about Giga's single shots, where you where he throw would throw one and give ground and then dip his head and shut his eyes while launching that two three of his, and he lands it. But like, it's it's not technical mastery. It's it's a it's like really good looking spam. You know, he dips his head, shuts his eyes, and just whips that shit. Now, let me ask you this. Even if Chikaze started out slower and was pacing himself right from the beginning, do you think anything would have changed or he would have just had a little bit more energy, but then still started tiring out, spamming, and just uh, getting walked down? I think he's a front runner uh, and he does well when he's ahead. And he, he's, he's really fast. But he has so many, he's almost like too explosive for his own good without that kind of command of of fundamentals when he fatigues. And you see that in his footwork. I mean, it's fucking everywhere. <laughs> like it's, it's just all over the place. And even whenever he landed a nice left hook against uh, Barboza, he jumped in with like both his hips, like square. Through this sweet left hook that like clipped Barboza in the ear, and then I think Chikazi fell. And how many times did that happen to him against Cater? You know, so he, th- he throws himself out of position. Credit to Chikazi, he's tough as hell, uh, and he's like I said, he's must see TV and he's fun to watch. But there are some there are some deficiencies in his game, you know. And you know, he got dropped what late in the fifth round. Um, but and, and I saw some people shitting on him, but he got dropped late in the fifth round because he was trying to win that fight. You know, he wasn't wait he wasn't waiting out the bell. You know, something um, that he could have absolutely done, and only the because of the beating he was taking, like, he was getting hit with overhand elbows. Like Cater was skipping in at distance and throwing like overarching elbows at distance and landing them. So I don't know if his vision was off or if he was just spent or if he's just too tough for his own good to get out of the way. But, you know, I wouldn't have faulted him if he just sort of coasted for uh, for the last round. You know, something he absolutely could have done and he didn't. And only the biggest assholes in MMA would shit on him for it. And then again, that's basically all the MMA fans <laughs> out there. Being an asshole is like the prerequisite for accessing SureDog or any real UG form. So who knows? A note to our loyal listeners, if you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Joe Rogan used to always like criticize Tyron Woodley, mostly because of his physique. He he also tried to do this with Usman, that they're so muscular and explosive that they'll tire out, right? And that's just all racism because first of all, you look at Usman's style, he's not an explosive guy. His wrestling's not even explosive. He just chains together, moves, and also he doesn't shoot the same thing over and over like uh, GSP. He shoots different stuff because he could shoot from either side or he can do multiple different types of takedowns. And also, Woodley, he, he has explosive moments, but he's actually a much more of a slower-paced, methodical fighter. 
But if you want to talk about somebody who is explosive and gasses out, that's Giga Chikaze, right? He is the epitome of explosive, fast twitch, and then burnout and slow down. Like, this is the guy, right? It's funny because he, when he walks out, like, you know, this dude looks good in a suit. Like, his shoulders are all capped out and it's perfect posture. But goddamn, if they don't fill up with blood so quickly, and then all <laughs> of a sudden, he looks, he looks very human. He goes from being incredibly fast to, and he's still super fast. But you got someone who's able to make reads and has the pocket presence of a Calvin Cater. Well, that little wrestling sequence in the first round had had uh, Giga looking really, really tired two minutes in, two minutes <laughs> into the second round. Well, he was exploding from the ground. And so later on, when he got up and was fighting round two, right, his legs were shaking, not because he was rocked, but because he was exploding with his legs and squeezing his legs so hard. Yeah. And I think to be this far along in you know, your, at least to be top, they got him ranked five in the UFC or fourth in the UFC. So to be ranked top five and not having sorted that out, that tells me you haven't had to. Your physicality has been what has been, been driving you. And people are going to say, if it's broke, don't fix it. But like, let's, let's, you start to figure out more efficient means of, of everything, you know? I can I can walk to the airport from where I live, but driving would be better. But even worse worse than driving, but better than walking would be taking a train um, or riding a bicycle. You can find better means of doing things, and if you decide not to, and, you, and you're resting on your laurels, or you're resting with whatever physical attributes have carried you that far. Well, then shame on you. It's a rapidly progressing sport. and There's only so much that the UFC hype machine is going to do to protect you. Eventually, you're going to get exposed. And maybe that is a little harsh, but maybe I just I get mad because he beat up on uh, on Edson. And I, I, I was really pulling for Edson on that pick. Like I think I cost a lot of people money. <laughs> <laughs> I was so sure. Um, but I was just as sure that uh, Cater and his ability to – well, there were some unknowns, right? There were some things we had to figure before I could say that, before I would tell anyone to put any money down on Calvin. Like, how much did, um, how much mileage did the Max fight put on him? And let's be honest, I, if you watch those fights, which I did, and then watch this his fight with Giga again, uh, he, taking the year off was smart, but but there's there's definitely some outstanding mileage on on the kid oh he took so many punches here too he did he thought he took a ton and he he didn't even flinch like he ate like he ate shots and then he just skipped through them and maintained pocket presence giga hits hard he hits fast and can be awkward at times and he'll go high and low and you know credit to credit to calvin for walking through it and making it a really really enjoyable fight to watch like if if you're not concerned about anyone's health, well-being, or um, technical proficiency. Next, let's talk about another fun fight. Brandon Royval versus Rogerio Bontarin. And in watching this, and I really wanted to hear your opinion, but I would hate to coach Royval because he's all over the place. So as a coach, tell me your thoughts about this fight. Well, I think Brandon Royval has one of the highest ceilings in, in the entirety of the UFC. Um, and what you just said is like from a coaching perspective, it's it's really difficult to watch because it's like, hey, kid, just settle down for a fucking second. 
he can do it all, right? But then that's the problem. Then he does it all. He really can. And I, I, I thought this was like sleeper fight. And I was, it was a really good fight to watch. Um, Could have gone either way. I did give it uh, uh, Brandon Royval, even though like Bontarine did some really good things. And there's an argument he made. But I just thought the overall body of work in the entirety of the 15 minutes goes to Raw Dog, which might be the worst fucking nickname in <laughs> UFC history, but hey, um, but I thought Brandon Brandon did enough to win. I call him Brandon like I know him, but I thought uh, <laughs> I thought Mr. Roy Val did enough to win. But you, you're right when you say it's incredibly frustrating because there was one point where he he fights from the southpaw stance, and uh, Bontarine was like throwing a jab, and Roy Val did a nice job of like half committing to his own straight left while st- slipping to the outside. In like simultaneously splitting that punch, but he didn't didn't extend on it, and he just used it to hit a little like slapping right hook and shift off, sort of like Lomachenko does when he faces an orthodox fighter. And then he didn't do anything from there. Waited for Bontarine to square back up. Bontarine landed like one of his like wide hooks that he kept landing every time that that Oival would go back and stay on center line. And it was it was a much closer fight than I really believed it had to be, but like I think, I think he can make some noise. He looks a little bit stronger than he did in some of those earlier fights where his shoulder was just dislocating because he didn't have any muscle mass holding it in or whatever it was. But he doesn't look quite as frail. I was going to ask you about that because you brought up his shoulders, which tend to dislocate. But in this fight, we also saw his ankle give out, and so like freak injuries are something that's been kind of haunting him. Do you think it's a product of his risk-taking style or maybe he spars like that too? So he just kind of throws himself all over the place and uh, just tends to hurt himself? Yeah, well, I think that, that perhaps the integrity of, of some of his connective tissue might be compromised a bit given the way, like you said, did you see his knee when he was hitting the, the Goga Plata and then he was like this, uh, and I'm just looking at it and I'm thinking like, even if that doesn't pop, you're going to be a little like rubbery in that area like flexibility comes at the expense of some stability so if you're hypermobile, you can hit some cool shit on the ground but like eventually like, i'm surprised about terrain with like his physical stature just didn't pop something loose just being so fucking strong and rigid next let's talk about caitlin chikagian versus jennifer maya this was a rematch from 2019 which chikagian also won the reason why I'm bringing this fight up is because now Chikagian has won three in a row and four of her last five. So it's an important fight as far as rankings. What were your thoughts about this fight? Uh, well, if I were a betting man, I would have put everything I've ever had. Like, is, zillion's not a number, I don't think, right? What, com- what comes after a trillion dollars? Um, but I would have I put that much on Chikagian by decision. Um, you get a kicker. If you get if you go by decision, like if that's so that's what I would have said by by you meant unanimous decision. And I I give Chukagian some grief because I have a bias like she, she has that those Long Island politics that I, I <laughs> yeah my, real bad over there. Oh Jesus, right? It tends to turn my stomach, but um, you're trying to put those those biases aside. I, uh, I honestly don't think there's a better fighter in the women's 
division, the entirety of the women's division, uh, at using their individual skill set and physical attributes to neutralize an opponent than, than Caitlin Chukagian. You know, and as, as a coach, that's one thing I say, like you fight to your strengths, regardless of what the fans think, regardless of what the, the, the powers that be in the UFC think. You know? So I think she does that as well as anybody. I think we've discussed how you can watch someone and tell they haven't sparred enough. But with Maya, it feels like she has a different problem where she sparred too hard, right? Which makes sense coming from shooter box. And so she has this kind of flinch response to getting hit now. Like she has some trauma from going against like brutes in the gym or getting knocked out a lot. So as the fight progressed, Maya started fighting worse. And it reminds me a bit of a quarterback who begins to release the ball too early because they've been sacked too many times. She was unloading her weapons way before she got into range, which then made it easy for Chicagian to pick her off with long shots. I know we talked about this while we were watching the fight, but did you have a similar read as far as like, uh, some trauma there from sparring, or maybe it was from fighting Valentina Shevchenko. So at, at the very beginning, when she was having some success, um, she she was throwing a throwaway jab. This is um, this is Maya. She was throwing a jab that she didn't really care if it landed. Then she was either punching with a straight right, and sometimes she would go to that overhand, and she was landing. She was landing a lot. Um, but then Chukagian, who who makes real time fight adjustments and is just an excellent. In, in very skilled technical problem solver in the cage, adjusted to Maya's offense. You know, Maya being the shorter fighter, she was having success with those throwaway shots, but she had to punch uphill with Chukagian being a significantly taller fighter, I think almost by six inches, right? Um, but the adjustments Chukagian made, what, like you said, she was picking her off when she was trying to crash that distance. And once that started happening, she started to get a little bit, I don't want to say gun shy because she's still committed to coming forward and throwing those shots. But if you watch and you slow it down on some of those sequences, she starts to pull back in anticipation of getting hit. Exactly. Which tells me you're right. Like Even the ones that she was landing, they looked like she was throwing incredibly hard. And I think Jennifer Maya is a good puncher who can crack. But when you start to pull back, a little bit when your force isn't rotated from from back foot to front front foot, but there's just a little bit of shift in the the you know in, in your hips because you don't want to follow through chest forward. You start to hesitate, or you take I don't know a half inch, an inch, two inches off your shots, and you're punching to a target as opposed to through a target. And Shukagan already has a decent chin can strike real well on the counter and you're just leaving yourself vulnerable and if you're pulling out after that that throwaway jab to that right hand i can promise you you're not pulling out and putting anything behind it maya isn't technical enough to put a fadeaway left hook behind that like to bait that too and then get her to counter two and bang turn on that hook she's not doing that so yeah i think i think there might be something to that maya went to that that jab straight, jab overhand over and over and over. And I think what was it the, either late in the second or in the third round, Maya finally threw a left head kick that wasn't even super well set up. But it was, I think it was, she, Maya made a read off of Chukagian's tendency to outside slip the jab. And so when she threw up her shoulder, like she might be jabbing and just threw a left kick over top of it, it almost landed 
flush on Chukagan. And, you know, credit to Chukagan, she came right back with a low kick and was like right in her face, which doesn't allow someone like Maya, who was probably down two rounds to none at the time, to really sit down on anything and get, get her rhythm set. Now let's talk UFC 270. With heavyweight champion Francis Ngannou taking on interim champion and former training partner Cyril Gaon. First, let's talk about Ngannou. What does he need to do to win? Uh, it's tough because if you if you make a checklist, right? Um, better conditioning, game. Better footwork, game. Better technical striker, game. Ability to work the body, game. He's also the betting favorite right now. The betting favorite? Okay. You know? Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. I might take that. Um, <laughs> he's, he's the younger man at 31. He's the taller man at six foot five. But, you know, uh, power being the great equalizer. And, and Ganu can punch you wrong and still fucking wreck you and send you just spinning, literally spinning. Um, as a top tier mixed martial arts athlete in the heavyweight division, like he will spin you and turn you ass over elbows with an uppercut, or he'll just like literally stop time and you just seem to melt into your own knees and fall awkwardly. Somebody said this was kind of like Wilder versus Fury for MMA. Uh, I mean, so so much as one fighter with only ten professional wins um, and another one that lost to Derek Lewis could be considered such a such an event but uh, i think i think it's going to be a, a fun fight and uh you know i i want to see it um but logically that's that's a little bit of uh hyperbole <laughs> but um i didn't even think that that the the water fury fights would be what they were the way you could look at it is gone dances around uh Nganu and beats him by decision or late tko or the other way, which is that, like Wilder, Ngannou hits him, drops him, but unlike Fury, who has like a miraculous chin, Gon will not get up like that. Yeah, but well, that's the thing about Tyson Fury. He has some otherworldly this this otherworldly ability to recover when he gets dropped. And um, the thing is with MMA is you don't get the the benefit of the the eight count or or the re the referee's count you got another guy jumping on you throwing like the most awkward hammer fists and like dribbling your head up the fucking mat so even if you have that ability but someone jumps on you and starts to you know dribble your head off the mat a couple of times it um it changes some things the the story is going to be how much is uh, surreal gone going to be pressured into making it a barn burner because if he doesn't he he dances rings around and gone well let's talk about that then if gone is trying to dance around him and outpoint him and outsmart him then what does Nganu need to do to stop that and catch him he needs to be a little bit patient because uh he's he's not that technical right and when and he's francis is improving but we're talking about like Technical acumen being etched into the DNA of fighters like Volkanovski and uh, and Max Holloway that they don't they don't break form no matter how fatigued they get. 
right? Even even great boxers don't. Like you don't see boxers doing some of these. Like I get it; it's not the, the same fight dynamics aren't at play, but they just don't get wild and all over the place at the highest level of boxing. And yeah, I guess it's a you start to combine skill sets, it becomes a little bit muddier. I get all that, but if if Francis starts to flop around wildly um, because conditioning is playing a factor and he's not patient, then, then it could, it could get pretty embarrassing for him. Uh, what I liked in the, uh, the Stipe fight is Francis has improved his wrestling. You know? um, and I don't know who wins in a wrestling match between, surreal and and stipe but like obviously stipe is the more credentialed wrestler um but heavyweight wrestling being what it is i don't you know i don't i don't i don't even know what that means <laughs> well you had former middleweight jake collier right taking down a heavyweight so right and um but i know defensively francis is, is doing the right things uh it seems like uh, Eric Nixick and Dewey Cooper and some of those other guys have been paying attention to where his hips are. Um, and he's, he's just so physically strong. But, I mean, there are, in, with only 10 fights, there's a, a limited data set on, on Sudo Gan, though he's fought, he's fought some, some pretty good guys. What interests me the most is like, how, does, how does Francis Ngannou handle someone with similar physicality to him? Now, obviously, Francis is the bigger puncher, but at six foot five and the, the athleticism and like, they both have like just stupid traps that start from their ears and like 20 inch necks. Uh, like these guys are both really physical and some guys don't do well when they fight their physical equal. I call it the, um, the Gustafson effect. Gustafson's length made it a problem for John Jones to look that, that impressive in their first fight. So. Um, if, if you see Nganu having trouble with, with someone who can match his physicality, um, and even vice versa, right? Um, but I thought Gon dealt with the physicality of Derek Lewis a lot better than, than Francis did, but that fight was years back and, you know, who knows what, what Francis 2.0 into Fran, Francis Ngannou 3.0 might hold. So, I mean, there are a lot of unknowns that make it pretty interesting. And the, the ridiculous power of Francis Ngannou just makes it a, a nail-biter no matter what. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room. Not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity, by supporting us, at patreon.com, slash, southpawpod. At Flyweight, we have the third title fight between champion Brandon Moreno versus Davison Figueredo. The first was a draw, the second was a third round finish for Moreno. Now, neither fighter has fought anyone else in between their fights. So all you have to go on is their last fights with each other. But how much can change between fights? I did see Figueredo is training with Henry Cejudo and crew for this fight. But can one camp change that much? 
Jason, what does Figueredo need to do this time to beat someone he's never beaten before in Moreno? Uh, I don't know that he does. And this is coming from someone <laughs> who, who, who I'm a big Figgy fan. And in the, the first fight, I was really pulling for him. Many would argue he won the first fight. I thought Moreno might have won. I was real nervous. Mm. I, I, I thought Moreno might have snuck it, um, uh, even though I, I forget. I got to watch that fight again. Um, but I was worried like that Brandon Moreno didn't have to win. And I really noticed how, like, how slick his boxing wrestling had become. And, and I, I was like, if, if Figueredo doesn't come up with an answer for some of those things and tries to be like that aggressive barnstormer against Moreno in the second fight, he's going to lose. And, and lo and behold, that's sort of how it, how it played out. Um, Moreno, just I don't know what, what's going on. I forget how old the kid is. What's he, 20, 28, right? And he's, he's continuing to get better. You know, putting age into um, what is just uh, like the fastest and probably pound for pound the most athletic weight class. I don't know that that Davidson Figueroa is enough to win. Um, I think Brandon Moreno might have his number and uh, might be if he continues to improve uh, and stays injury free before his 30th birthday. We might have conversations about him being pound for pound the best fighter in the world. That's that's my prognostication, um, you know, uh, but I've been, I've been wrong plenty of times before. <laughs> well, going over to train with Henry Cejudo and his team sounds like he's trying to mix wrestling with his karate, right? It's one of the few places where you can go and it's not boxing wrestling, it's boxing karate, right? Even though Cejudo himself has a boxing background, you saw that he changed it to more of this karate style. And you see the Pitbull brothers and a lot of people who train there for their camp, they start playing a little bit more of this karate style to wrestling game. So Davidson Figueredo is a good boxer, but he stands and explodes and jumps in like a karate fighter. So I wonder if he felt like this would be a good compliment. So I think that's what the game plan is going to be. This kind of intercepting karate style mixed in with wrestling. And that would be a path to victory, except when we saw that last time, when it goes to the ground, it looked like Moreno was better anyway. And then when it stays standing, Moreno is good enough to survive those single strikes and then beat him with volume. Yeah. I, uh, Moreno's boxing looked really, really clean. I mean, he seemed to have the grappling advantage, which, which was surprising to me. I knew he would probably have a wrestling advantage. But his conditioning and ability to – like Moreno's a smart fighter in mixing those things together. I think earlier in his career – it was kind of like Roy Val. He was all over the place. He was. And he didn't really have like a cohesive fight identity where there was any critical path methodology where one thing led to another and build upon it. It was just, hey, man, we got all the parts for the job. Let's start fucking building. It's like, oh, shit, we got to tear up all the underground because we got to put in our uh, our foundation. Shit. Like, there, there should be some sort of um, higher level critical path that and I get fighting is violent and chaotic. But now you're going against the top fighters. You're a championship caliber fighter. That means you're going to be fighting other championship caliber fighters. Um, when that happens, you better be able to, to cohesively implement strategy if you're getting beat on pure physicality. And fighters that don't do that, I mean, in, in the year 2022, well, fucking God help us all. If you're not making those decisions, 
based on the information available. I mean, every fight is out there via either Fight Pass um, or or YouTube. Like, there's data available, and you can you can improve both physically and strategically, and take that data and and make more informed decisions. And anything that gives you an advantage at the highest level of this thing, like fight study, becomes exceptionally important. And I don't know if Moreno watches film. I don't know if, if Figgy watches film. But any fighter that says, I don't watch film, I let my coaches do that. Well, then you're, you're a fucking asshole, right? And you're ignorant and you're not, you are not, uh, you are not working as, as, um, as efficiently as you possibly could. And you are not taking advantage of the information that's out there to make you a, a, as good as you can possibly be. And that kind of like macho, assholeish hubris of, I'll let my, I'll let my, you don't listen to your fucking corner anyway, man. You're lying. But watch the fucking fights. Improve. <laughs> Do your homework. Do your homework. Do your homework. And the way the brain processes that information is different if you have an immediate exposure. Right? You know, it's the relearn principle, right? I, I, what I forget, whatever the pedagogical principle is. But when you have exposure to something one time, when you see it again, the ability to acquire that information, your learning curve is decreased. Certainly, you can over over focus and create like a sense of of anxiety and angst, and you know maybe some fighters are, are built a little bit differently. But like, I think if you're grizzled enough to go in blind, you should be grizzled enough to take the the fact that you may be watching another world championship caliber fighter do some great shit and come up come up with a plan or at least some sort of mitigation strategy. To, to work as optimally as possible. I think uh, for his last several fights, Moreno has been also training at some of the top boxing gyms in Mexico and in Vegas. So I think that's part of why his boxing has gotten so much better. And even leading up to this fight, I think he's doing that again, where he's just training a lot of boxing. I think that is incredibly important. And uh, I, guess, I guess philosophies vary. Um, and I'm not as active as a coach as I once was, but one thing is if you could, if you can marry the tactile with the visual, the tactile of wrestling and the visual acumen that comes with boxing without being bailed out by, by wrestling or by, by clinch work, you create um, a set of circumstances for the brain to perform optimally because it's it's seen it's been exposed it had countless repetitions where you couldn't go right if my double leg is so good that anyone that, that is piecing me up with a double jab straight right or uppercut hook or touching me to the body like the second i get hit once i put them on their back well i've limited my exposure to techniques that score on me you want to increase those repetitions and that exposure to those techniques so that you can you can improve. It should be it, like winning is a byproduct of doing the right things and the things that are necessary to be a great fighter. Chasing wins or dominating certain positions um, at the expense of improving deficiencies will always be exposed. Eventually, you will all, you will be exposed. The last fight we're going to discuss is a featherweight fight. Uh, you have undefeated Ilya Toporia, which I know is someone you've been excited about, facing late replacement Charles Jourdain, which, in my opinion, is a much easier fight than 
Movsar Evloev. So for Charles Jordan, this is going to be a tough fight. But Topuria has been training for a wrestler, and now he's going to be facing a striker. So sometimes that does mess up fighters. Jason, I mentioned how uh, you're a fan of Topuria, uh, especially his hooks to the body. So what do you think Topuria needs to do to win this fight? He needs just to be a little bit, a little bit looser um, because Jordan is... All right, if I were going to open another mixed martial arts school, I'd probably hire Jordan as one of my like kickboxing instructors. He's good at it. He, he's, he stays in good form, right? His hands are high. He's defensively aware. Makes good reads. Makes real good reads, um, especially if you try to box him up. If you try to come in with a jab, he's going to throw that, that decoy hook or that slapping hook and then, you know, right to the low kick or he'll hit the jab to the low kick and he's going to chip away your, your lead leg if you give him that. Um, unfortunately for Charles Jordan, I think uh, Ilya Tapuria is, is tailor-made to absolutely fucking wreck him. So it's a bad style matchup. It is. It might be uh, from a matchmaking perspective. It's, it's really, it's really genius because, um, like I said, I've been wrong before, but these are my thoughts. This is my theory. This is my analysis. Um, like from a matchmaking perspective, it, it's going to bring out the best in Ilya Tapuria, Charles Rudin's style, his, his striking centric style, where it's not telegraphed. He doesn't like show his punches and, and his kicks, but they are the style that you know you're going to get. It's more of a traditional Muay Thai style. It doesn't have a lot of funk and flair. Um, you know, so his best bet is going to be a chip away at the legs at Tapuria. Um, but Tapuria's tailor made to eat that up. He's got. The, the wrestling chops, if he wants to put it on the ground, and he's been geared to face a wrestler. He has offensive style wrestling combined with a jujitsu black belt. And he's a guy that really likes being good at striking. And he'll he'll chip you with that overhand right, and it'll lead him. I and mean, he doesn't care if it lands or not. He ain't hit you in the shoulder. He's still going to turn that left hook to your fucking body. Uh, he wants to snatch up that liver and take a bite out of it. My one knock on him is he's a little bit rigid. Just a little bit, just a little bit, and that's going to wear you out. Um, but he's like jujitsu first, and I think wrestling second, if I'm not mistaken, and then then striking third. And rigid striking doesn't doesn't really wear you out quite as much as like rigid grappling. If anyone that's ever grappled for the first time understands, like why don't my fingers work anymore? Right? But Charles Jordan does some good stuff, and he's fun to watch. So from a matchmaking perspective, I think he's going to look good uh, in spurts. What does Jordan need to do then to pull an upset? To be his best bet is to chip away at the legs and be very, very patient. You Did you watch the uh, Andre Yule fight between Jordan? Yes. Yule looks good in moments. You know, he's got, he's got absolute abysmal cardio. But in spurts, like he was, he was landing. He was quick and he's explosive and he hit some 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 nice stuff like he was just leaping in with a, a single left hook um but then like once you start to, to slow down you can't telegraph that those shots and then five minutes is pretty taxing on on anybody's fast switch muscle fiber so um he started to started to slow down and jordan started to, to pull away the hope is that you can be patient enough to this is my thought patient enough 
to work on that lead leg of Tapuria, uh, to take away from him sitting on some power shots uh, and pressuring you against the cage where he would just start ripping the body and then back upstairs to the head. He finds that overhand right, whether it hits you behind the ear, clips you on the chin. He's great at it. And he follows it up with body work. So uh, can you be patient enough to, to, I don't know, to chip away at the armor to, to, to try to take those legs out? And, and at the same time, if I remember correctly, because the last fight was the first round KO against Ryan Hall, and another one was against Damon Jackson, but he looked against Yusuf. I think he might have, it went the distance, and I think he looked a little bit human in terms of his gas tank. Well, there's the, the trade-off. Like, can you get it to a third round to, to get to Puria a, a little bit gassed without making it more of a barn burner? Because if it's a barn burner, it favors uh, to Puria every day, all day. So um, I don't really see a clean path to victory for Charles Jourdain, but I think it's going to be fun. And you're going to see uh, spurts from Jourdain that's going to, similar to the, um, the Damon Jackson fight where his skill set is going to be enough to make Tapuria look outstanding, but it's good, good matchmaking from a developmental perspective where if you can deal with what Charles Jourdain does well as a relatively limited mixed martial artist, then you get to build up uh, a 24 year old who is potentially the, the next star um, at 145 pounds. Now, and I say that being like he, he could, he could lose like once every year for the next four years and still be 28 years old with only four losses <laughs> on his record, right? <laughs> so there's, there's some time for this kid to continue to develop. I think that's enough for today. If you like what you've heard, consider telling your friends and throwing us a few bucks on Patreon or Ko-Fi. You'll get bonus content and be able to talk to us and other listeners on our Discord. With that said, thanks for listening and catch you all here after UFC 270. Remember, nothing you've heard here is financial advice. <laughs> right. We're just opining here, right? So do your own research, right? And feel free to disagree, man. I'd love to hear some comments where you tell me I'm a fucking idiot. That's fine. That's fine. We can debate that all day. So it's the first time. It's not the worst time. Let us know on Twitter or on social media, on the Discord, if you have your own theories. And the best way to learn is from the Hive. So give us some of your reads as well. Thank you.